Well, first service we had someone read scripture that was dressed way better than I was. And so we put Joey in second service because he didn't even tuck his shirt in. So that was a, a really easy call for me. Um, <laughs> I, I would only say it to someone on staff. Uh, and uh, we actually are very thankful for Joey and his leadership with middle school. And we're excited to have our students with us this morning. So cool stuff. All right, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what we're talking about today. We pray that you would open your scriptures to us uh, on this subject, and that um, the truth, the foundation of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus, would, would empower us as, as you would have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story that we just read, we've been, we've been journeying through, if you've been with us and open here, uh, the Gospel of John, uh, for the, well, for the, for the last couple of weeks, um, and uh, just in the story of Jesus, and we finally have gotten to Jesus' resurrection uh, in, this, in this little mini-series. And the story we just read, that Joey just read, is often referred to, if you know your, your New Testament, it's often called the story of Doubting Thomas, right? And it's this famous passage, not only because it's about Jesus' resurrection, that makes it a famous passage, but also because of Thomas's just really cynical response here, right, to faith. And it's, it's the story of an apostle of the faith, who doesn't have, you know, who doubts that Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> and uh, I feel really bad for Thomas because th- that, this doubting Thomas, that, that name kind of became his legacy in the New Testament. And the irony is that uh, though, he, though he's often portrayed as this kind of cynical, all-too-human character in the, in the Bible story, uh, the, this story about him, his story, is actually the high point. It's the climax of John's entire gospel. This story that we just heard right here. And almost every student of John, every scholar of this book acknowledges that Thomas's story, so what we just read, is, is the last thing John wants on our mind when we close his book. Now, there's still one more chapter, John chapter 21. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. But chapter 21 is really more of an epilogue to the story. It's tying up loose ends and it's concluding the story, setting a trajectory moving forward. John chapter 20, the story of Thomas is one of the most important points John wants to make. And it's not because of Thomas's doubt. Thomas, John doesn't want us to, to walk away thinking, wow, we really shouldn't be like Thomas. That's the lesson of this text. That's not what John is saying. In fact, he's saying the opposite because Thomas's faith, his incredible faith, as we will see, is what is highlighted in this story. And John ends this whole section saying this story is here, in verses 30 to 31, he basically says, this story is here that you might have faith. And it's implied that you might have faith like Thomas did. And Thomas's story is all about faith. It's about what, what is biblical faith. And this is important that we pay attention to this conversation here because there are a few more ambiguous words in English than the word faith, the idea of faith. People use it in all kinds of different ways. And faith today, at least as I have come to understand, in, in a popular sense, has, has either come to mean something that's very subjective or very ignorant. And let me explain what I mean. When people talk about or hear about a person of faith, uh, I think in general what is meant is a person who is either too weak emotionally to deal with reality, so they create another one that they call faith, or someone who's too ignorant to understand reality, so they cling to some kind of archaic understanding of the world, right? Some ancient religion. 
And faith today is, in other words, is either, is sometimes seen as either an emotional crutch that people have, or it's intellectually dishonest. And the sentiment, that, that idea is summarized well in a, in a very influential writer. His name is Richard Dawkins. He's a, a popular atheist writer. And he, he says this about faith. He says, faith is the great cop-out. It's the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, and even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. And in other words, uh, Dawkins is saying, faith is, is for weak people and dumb people. But John, the apostle, in this story begs to differ. And if we understand John correctly, and the story of Thomas correctly in his gospel, uh, we'll see that biblical faith is something totally different than what Richard Dawkins and people like him would have us believe. And specifically, John will show us three things. He'll show us three things about faith, what faith is in chapter 20. And the first thing he'll show, if you're taking notes, this is where we're going. He'll show us what faith isn't, and then what faith is, and then finally, how do we get it? So what faith isn't, what it is, and then how do we get it? So first, uh, what faith isn't. So if you haven't turned to John 20 already, you can do that now. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the last of the four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament. And we pick up the story here uh, the Sunday after Jesus was crucified. So Jesus, we talked about that last, last Sunday. Jesus was crucified on Sunday of that week. Uh, the, it's evening on that day. The disciples, we find, are all hiding in a locked room, huddled together. And the text kind of opens saying, for fear of the Jews, they're hiding. And uh, not just any Jews, they were Jews, uh, <laughs> but specifically uh, the Jews who got Jesus crucified. Because, and uh, they were absolutely terrified, scared for their lives, because, and which makes sense, because if they were, if, if they were going to kill Jesus, which they did, how much more would they kill his closest followers, who are these 11 guys holed up in this room? And not only are they scared, though, they're probably, I would imagine, they're devastated, because they banked their entire lives on Jesus. They left their jobs, their home, their families, in many cases, to follow Jesus, and, now, and, and none of them saw this coming. Jesus is gone. Jesus is dead. So now what do we do? They have to be asking themselves this question. What do we do now? And sure, they had heard from Mary earlier in chapter 20. They'd heard from Mary that she saw Jesus raised from the dead, but that probably seemed absolutely ludicrous to them. And frankly, the testimony of a woman at this time was never, almost never taken seriously. It was inadmissible in, 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 in a court of law. The assumption was that women were too emotionally driven to be trusted, and the disciples, to their shame, uh, bought into that idea. And anyway, the disciples, they're just baffled by what they've heard from Mary. They don't get it, and they're still clearly very scared for their lives. And then all of a sudden, as, as, we, as we write in the story, all of a sudden, Jesus appears in the room. It's like, the, the idea is kind of like, poof, he's there. And uh, John makes it very, seem like this really calm appearance, right? Like Jesus shows up, and the disciples are like, oh, Jesus, you made it here. Oh, great. But I know that was supposed to be funny, but it wasn't. But in Luke 24, um, which is, you know, the same account from a different perspective in Luke, uh, Luke gives us more detail in chapter 24 of his book. And he said the disciples are petrified when Jesus just shows up in the room. And it seems like in, in, in that story, you know, Jesus spends the first 10 minutes of his appearance just trying to convince them he's not a ghost. And, uh, you know, he invites them. He says, you know, you know, touch my hands, feel my side. I'm, I'm actually here. And I, I bet when he puts his hands out, that <laughs> I just can't help but imagine the disciples, this awkward moment where they look at each other and they say, you touch him first, I'm not going to do it. But finally Jesus, you know, says to them, okay, go get, food, go get some fish 
and I'll eat a fish, right? And I'll, I'm not a ghost. I'm physically here. Ghosts don't eat things. It's really me, body and all. I'm here. And we'll talk in just a moment about why that specifically is so important. But this moment of seeing the resurrected Lord changes everything for the disciples. It changes everything. This moment, unlike every other moment they've spent with Jesus, and keep in mind, these guys have, have spent three years nonstop with Jesus. But this moment, not those moments, this moment will define their faith forever. And their faith is forever rooted in this encounter with Jesus. And there's, but there's only one problem in the story. And John points out in verse 24. And the problem is that Thomas, who is one of the twelve, is not present. He's not there. Now, we don't know where he is. Is he out buying dinner? Was he just depressed and out wandering in the streets? I mean, we have no idea. But when he comes back, the disciples, the other disciples jump all over him. They say, we have seen the Lord. That's how John records it. We've seen the Lord. And the, and the, the verb in Greek here that they told uh, Thomas, that they've seen the Lord, implies an ongoing action. It's as if the, the, the disciples are saying to Thomas again and again and again, we've seen the Lord. No, really, we, we've seen the Lord. No, Thomas, for real. And finally, Thomas, right, says his famous line in verse 25 to them as they continue to badger him about this. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe and it's, it's, I mean, Thomas is basically, he's saying, shut up. I'm not, I don't believe you and I'm not going to, I won't have faith. And my guess is that when he said that, the conversation just kind of stopped. And let's stop there for a minute. Now, because John is teaching us something really important in this part of the story. You see, for one week, for one week in history, so between Thomas saying, I will never believe, and Jesus appearing to him a week later, which we'll get to, for one week, Thomas related to the disciples exactly how we do. You see, he did not see the resurrected Jesus, and we haven't either. He wasn't there. He, he only hears about it from the disciples themselves, just like we do. The tes- their testimony is called the New Testament. This is their account their, of what they saw. Right? We read this, we're, reading the t- we're, we're basically having a conversation with the disciples about what they saw. And this is the first thing Thomas teaches us about what faith is not. Faith is not blind trust. Faith is not blind trust because John is showing us that his account and that every account in the New Testament of Jesus' resurrection is based on eyewitness testimony. They saw it. And you see this throughout the New Testament, not just in the book of John. Um, in, In John, the author wrote several epistles, letters, and in the first of those letters, he, he, he says to his readers that his authority, his preaching, his entire ministry is based on that which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Now, what is, what is John talking about there? He's, he's saying, we have seen the resurrected Lord. Everything I'm about to tell you matters because we have seen him. It happened. That's why we have faith. So how do you and I, 2,000 years later, after all of this happened, How do we believe and have faith in Jesus? Well, how can we possibly do that? Well, we examine the eyewitness testimony of the disciples. Because it's their claim, it is their claim, not simply that the tomb was empty and that they they inferred a resurrection. Like, well, there's no other explanation. He must have raised from the dead. Nor is their claim, we hope he resurrected from the dead. Or he he was resurrected in faith in our hearts somehow, right? Their claim is, we saw it 
It happened. And this is incredibly powerful for faith, even today. And no one has said this better than N.T. Wright. Uh, He's an accomplished historian. He's recognized by New Testament scholars of all stripes of religious conviction, to conservative, to very liberal, uh, to be a a premier historian in the world, very highly respected person. And after decades, his life work, really, studying the eyewitness testimony in the New Testament of the apostles, of of the resurrection of Jesus and and the rise of the early church, He concludes in his book, it's called The Resurrection of the Son of God, probably the most important work written on the resurrection, but it's it's like a thousand pages, but uh, he, he concludes that the historical probability of the resurrection is at least as high as the probability that Caesar Augustus died in AD 14 or that Jerusalem fell to Rome in AD 70. And his point is, these are facts that no historian debates. These happened. In other words, the truth of what the disciples claim in the New Testament, according to N.T. Wright, that Jesus rose from the dead, is at least as certain as the historical claim that there was a Julius Caesar or an Alexander the Great. The eyewitness testimony that we have access to is incredibly powerful and incredibly reliable. That's what John is saying. None of us have seen the resurrected Jesus, is my guess. But we do not believe that he, res- that he was raised blindly. It's not blind. The disciples saw it with their own eyes, and it is their testimony in Scripture that we must accept or reject on those terms. Thomas is the first person asked to believe in the resurrection without seeing it. He's the first one. Now, ironically, he rejects that testimony at first, and he's rebuked for that later on. But John is pointing out this is reliable testimony. We saw this with our eyes. We touched it with our hands. Faith is not blind, nor is it spiritual. John's second point about what faith isn't is that faith isn't spiritual, at least in how we normally use that word. It's not spiritual. Now, jumping back into the story, a long week goes by uh, in verse 26. So Thomas says, no, I don't believe you, and then a week goes by. The disciples are still hiding in some hole-in-the-wall guest house in Jerusalem. And by, but this time, Thomas is with them. John points out. And in the same way he appeared out of nowhere before, Jesus appears in the middle of the room. And this time he he turns immediately to Thomas and he says, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas, um, John's going out of his way to show that that Thomas' encounter with Jesus is not spiritual, it's physical. It's historical. It literally happened in space and in time. Jesus says, touch my hands, feel my scars. I'm physically here, raised from the dead. Now, this is important because basically since the beginning of Christianity 2,000 years ago, people have tried to understand the Christian faith to be based on something else, to be based on anything else other than the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And you've probably heard, you've heard ideas like this before. People often look at the Christian faith and they say being a Christian is primarily about being a good person. Or being a Christian is about following Jesus' example, especially to the poor and the oppressed. Or being a Christian is about following Jesus' teaching and doing your best to live it out. So in other words, what, what people say is that faith is primarily spiritual. It's an inward attitude that you have. It's a moral posture that you take. It's a commitment to a philosophy or a way of life. But that completely misses what John is saying. 
Because as we said before, this story, this story of John 20 is the climax, it's the high point of the whole gospel. And John has spent countless pages in his book summarizing Jesus' teaching, his moral instruction, his interpretation of the Old Testament. It's all there, but none of that, none of that stuff is the climax of his book. It's the resurrection. And if the point of Christian faith was Jesus' teaching or his example, then Thomas didn't need to, to meet the risen Lord, did he? He spent over three years with Jesus. He memorized, he probably memorized everything Jesus said. That's what disciples did back then. He saw with his own eyes what Jesus did during his life, but that did not make him an apostle. You see, despite everything Thomas knew firsthand about Jesus, he did not become an apostle. He did not become a preacher. He did not become a messenger of the good news. He did not become the foundation of the church until he saw the resurrected Lord. Then he was commissioned. Because faith is not spiritual. It's not, what you fe- it's not about what you feel. It's about what happened. It's about history. It's about the resurrection. And all truly Christian faith hangs not on Jesus' teaching or his example, but on his resurrection from the dead. And every teacher in the New Testament affirms this truth. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he banks everything, his life, his ministry, his work, on the resurrection of Jesus. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain and we are of all people most to be pitied. That's what he says. Paul is saying, and John is saying with him, that faith is not feel goodies about Jesus' example. It rises or falls, it lives or it dies on the fact of the resurrection. And if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then nothing else Jesus said or did matters at all. That's what the apostles of Jesus are saying. That's what John is saying, because faith is about history. And that means that this book, the Bible, is either a life-changing, history-altering, earth-shattering, historical account of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, or it is completely worthless. It It is even harmful detriment to humanity and to society. The Bible is not good advice about how to live. Nor is it a biography of a person we should try to imitate. It is an account of God saving the world through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. And if that did not happen, Paul says, throw it away. Faith is not blind, nor is it merely spiritual in some mystical way. So what, what is faith? <laughs> What's the positive case? This is John's second point, what, what faith is. And if you look back at John 20, Jesus has just appeared to Thomas. And Thomas, unlike the other disciples, isn't simply dumbfounded by Jesus' sudden appearance. He, he says out loud in verse 28, my Lord and my God. And we begin to see there the, the incredible faith of Thomas. And we begin to understand why John would, put, would make this the climax of his whole story. Because what Thomas is saying here is the most profound thing, the most profound thing that has yet been said in the Gospel of John. Thomas, in this one phrase, is defining what biblical faith in Jesus really is. Because real faith, as John has defined it throughout his whole gospel, is is about answering one basic question. And that question is, who is Jesus? A believer answers one way, a, a disbeliever, an unbeliever answers another. And John has been showing us throughout his gospel exactly who Jesus is. That was the point of his book. And here, Thomas finally gets it. You see, throughout the book of John, Jesus is always talking to people. He's always trying 
to convince people who he is. He's saying, who do you think that I am? Here's, what, here's who I am. What do you think? He talks about, Jesus talks about living a sinless life. Okay, who does that? He talks about perfectly representing the Father. He claims that to know me, he says, to know me is to know the Father in heaven. Who says that? And most audaciously, Jesus says in John chapter 8 to his accusers, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Now, if you know your Old Testament, which the people Jesus was speaking to certainly did, they, they knew in the book of Exodus, when God reveals himself to Moses for the first time, he gives himself a name. And that name is, I am that I am. I am means uncreated. It means eternal. It means the source of all other being in the universe. I am. Jesus is taking the divine name and applying it to himself in John chapter 8. And that is why in that story, everyone who hears him picks up a rock immediately and tries to kill him. And that is why eventually in John chapter 19, he will be killed. Because who, who is Jesus? John is saying, Jesus is God. This is the first thing we learn about faith, is that Christian faith is divine. Christian faith affirms that Jesus is not merely Savior, but is God himself. And Thomas is the first one to get it. Thomas is the first one to see in Jesus' resurrection proof of who Jesus is. My Lord and my God. Now again, from the very beginning of Christianity, lots of people have tried to avoid Thomas's conclusion. People have come along, they read the New Testament, and they say, this whole resurrection thing, this whole Jesus is divine thing, it's, I don't, it's not, I'm not comfortable with that. So I, I think these are just legendary elements that the church added later, right? At the, at the core of Jesus' message, he's, he's a wise teacher who taught us to love one another, and that's what I'm going to take away from the New Testament. And again, John looks at that and he, he anticipates that attitude. And he says, absolutely not. You cannot say that about Jesus. Jesus, in every encounter, right, he's, he is not a good teacher and he is, he, is not a ni- he is not a nice guy. Jesus is not afraid to get into people's faces. And if you don't believe me, read the New Testament. Everyone who encountered Jesus either loved him or they hated him. And there's a reason for that. Because Jesus, every time he met someone, forced the issue of his identity with them. He said, who do you think I am? Jesus was constantly forcing people to make a decision about who he was. And when Jesus says, to know me is to know the Father, okay, that means to, he's saying, to know me is to know God, to encounter God when you meet me. He is not being a good teacher. Because a, t- a good teacher is, is, is a humble person, right? They don't claim to be God. That doesn't tend to go over very well when you're lecturing someone. And Jesus just, when you read Jesus, he sounds like he's crazy. He sounds like he's a psychopath, right? Unless he's right. And that's the point. Jesus, with every person he encounters, whenever faith is on the line in a conversation, Jesus says to us, he says to, in the New Testament, he says to everyone, he says to us, even today, either, either crown me Lord or crucify me as a heretic. One or the other. And what you can never do with Jesus is say, he was a nice moral example. He was a wise teacher because he was not those things. He is either God or he is the most sinister liar in history. And Christian faith affirms, along with Thomas, that Jesus was the word and the word was God. 
John chapter 1. Faith is divine, and, and in that sense, it's propositional. It, there's a doctrine here that must be affirmed intellectually to be a Christian, and, and that is that Jesus is Lord and God eternal. There's content to the faith. It's defined by doctrine. Doctrine is a helpful thing. You should be able to, you should be able to know and articulate that doctrine as a believer, but, but faith is so much more than that. Faith is not simply divine. It's not simply a doctrine. Faith is intensely personal. It's personal. And this is the second thing John teaches us about what faith is. It's personal. Now, Thomas, when he sees Jesus, he does not simply say, Jesus, you are Lord and God. He says, you are my Lord and you are my God. And your faith in Jesus is not truly a Christian faith until you can say that statement with these personal pronouns, me, mine. You see, there, there is a profound, you think about this in your everyday life, there is a profound difference between me pointing to my wife, Rebecca, and saying, she is a wife and a mother. That's true. But there is a huge difference between saying that and saying, she is my wife and the mother of my children. Because the facts need to be there, right? I need to know that she is a wife and a mother. The facts have to be there for this statement to make sense. But only when I say me and mine do the facts about Rebecca not only define her, but they begin to define me. And it's not enough to know that Jesus is Lord. You must know and know intimately. You have to know personally that Jesus is your Lord. And until you see in Jesus not simply a good moral teacher or a savior who gets you through hard times in life, and not simply as someone you honor once a week or on religious holidays, until you see him as your Lord, your God, your King, until you see your relationship with him as the most, the defining relationship of your life, then you are not a Christian in the way that, that John means. Because Thomas's story shows us that faith is intensely personal. It comes to define you in a way that nothing else can, nothing else will. And faith like that is incredibly powerful. It's so powerful that these 11 guys who, who, who witnessed the resurrection, excuse me, Thomas included, they give their lives in service to Jesus. So, so how do we get that kind of faith? How do we get it? Uh, how do we begin to, to, to live out this changed life and see the world differently as they did? This is our last, our last question. And there are three practical ways here that come right out of this text about how we can grow in our faith in, in the way that Thomas does. And the first is we, we grow in our faith by reading and knowing the eyewitness accounts. Right after the story of Thomas and his incredible faith, uh, John says this about the whole, the whole book, the purpose of his book. He says, now Jesus did many other signs, this is in verse 30, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John is saying the point of this whole, his whole book, the point of the entire Bible is to encourage faith in Jesus. That's the point. And not just any faith, Right? a life-transforming faith that you may have life in his name. And you see, it's, it's a good thing to come to church and we're, gl- like you're, we're glad that you're here. It's a good thing to listen to sermons. It is good to, to listen to other Christians talk about their experience with God and their own lives. Uh, it's good to go to class and learn about your faith. Those are all good and, and meaningful things. But the way John tells us in this text to grow in our faith is to read the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Because when you read these accounts, you get to know Jesus in a way that you can't otherwise. 
No matter where your no, no matter where your intellectual problems are with Christianity, if you have those, no matter what your emotional problems are with the with the Christian faith, if you read these accounts, if you just read them, Jesus will become real to you in a way that he won't if you don't. And then and only then, after you read, can you accept him or reject him on his terms, not on yours. And either way, even if you reject him, it, when, when you do so on his terms, by reading the books about him, you are much closer to him than you were before you read the Bible. That is true. And if you want to grow in your faith, read the, the accounts, read the testimonies. Even the disciples who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, right? They saw this, needed to go back to the Old Testament to make sense of what they were seeing, what they were experiencing. Ah, that's why Jesus had to die for our sins. It's written here. That's why he rose on the third day. It's written here. And the more they went back and read their Old Testament, the more they went back and read the Bible, the more their faith in Jesus grew. We are no different. So know these accounts. Read the accounts, number one. Number two, this is a little more subtle, but know that you are known know that you're known. And one of the very profound points of this text happens somewhere between verses 25 and 27 of chapter 20. And in, you see in verse 25, Thomas says, I will not believe unless I touch Jesus' hands and I put, his, put my hand into his side. And then in verse 27, Jesus shows up and he quotes Thomas back to himself. He says, put your finger here. Put your hand on my side. Believe in me. Now, the only weird thing about that is that Jesus wasn't there when Thomas said this, right? He wasn't in the room. But he heard every word Thomas said. And he, he, he knew every doubt that Thomas felt. And part of what, in, I'm, I'm convinced, part of what inspired Thomas to say, my Lord and my God, part of what turned that skeptic into a powerful believer was the knowledge that he was known by Jesus through and through. His faults, his weaknesses, his doubts, Everything. Jesus saw everything and he showed up anyway. He showed up. And Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows everything about us and that is transforming when you grasp that. When you first, and you feel this in your life, when you first get married or you first move in with a friend, you become a roommate to someone you know or that you think you know really well and then something happens, usually pretty early on, like, they do something weird, like they start walking around in their underwear, or they leave the bathroom door open, all, you know, and it's, or they never clean up after themselves. They come home, and the house is a wreck, and there's this moment you have where you think, I thought I really knew you, but I didn't know this about you, <laughs> and I wish I didn't, but <laughs> when, when you get through, if, if you get through this moment, and when you get through this moment, uh, the relationship is stronger, Right? Because you begin to trust each other more and more with, with the stuff you hide from everyone else. Jesus, Jesus already knows all that stuff about you. He knows, every, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows everything you've done, everything you are capable of doing. He knows every weakness. He knows every fear. He knows every failure better than anyone, but he moves in anyway. And part of growing in faith is grasping that Jesus has a supernatural knowledge about you and loves you anyway. Thomas understood in that moment that Jesus did not simply raise from the dead, but he rose from the dead and went to find Thomas. See the difference? He rose from the dead and he went to find you. He went to find me. Know that you're known. You're known and you're loved. Read the the eyewitness accounts. Know that you're known. 
And finally, uh, the third, third way our faith can grow is remember Jesus' scars. And I'm convinced that part of the reason Thomas was so hesitant to believe that Jesus had really risen from the dead was how hurt he was about what happened. He, I mean, he's probably wrestling, how could God allow this to happen? How, how, could, how could God not rescue Jesus in his hour of need? How could he do that to Jesus? How could he do this to me for everything I've done? He maybe even heard Jesus yell from the cross to his father, why have you forsaken me? And is still wondering the answer to that question. Why have you forsaken me? He could not open himself to the pain of believing again. Have you ever been there? But Jesus shows up and he shows him his scars in verse 27. And something about those scars turns this calloused, hurt skeptic into one of the most, into a full-fledged believer, one of the most power believers in history and follower of Jesus. There's something about those scars. And I wonder if when Thomas saw those scars and saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, he realized that there was nothing, there was absolutely nothing that God could not redeem in his life. Nothing. No loss, no heartache, no pain that God could not redeem. God redeemed the crucifixion, which was the most brutal, excruciating, humiliating death of the most innocent and perfect man who ever lived. God took that and saved the world through it. He can redeem our pain. He can. And it's always amazed me that Jesus, when he gets his new resurrected body that is physical, but can somehow walk through walls, right? This incredible new creation. He chooses to keep his scars. He gets a brand new body, right? Made with, it's made to represent a whole new order of life, a whole new order of living, a new creation, and yet his scars remain always. They're there. Why? I mean, the resurrection, if you think about it, is the promise that scars and pain and death do not ultimately define us. They do not have the last word. So why does Jesus keep his scars? Well, I think it's a reminder that even in the, even in the new heavens and the new earth, even in the new creation that Jesus promises to bring, they are a reminder that Jesus' scars are eternal so that ours do not have to be. We will never forget that. And no matter how life challenges our faith, and there are incredible pains in this life that will threaten your faith, no matter how bad it gets, Thomas knew, and we must know, no matter how bad it gets, Jesus' scars prove that God cares and that he understands what you're going through. And his resurrection proves that he's doing something about it. Death will not have the last word in our lives. No other religion offers to us, offers to believers the scars of God. And the scars of God can inspire incredible faith. Because we all have to have faith in something. If you think long and hard enough about it, that's true. You've got to have faith in something. You may not be able to articulate it out loud right now what that is. But you are, for sure, you are banking your life, you're banking your existence, your identity, your worth, your value on something. And Christians throughout history, Thomas included, bank their lives, put their faith in the God with scars. And John is inviting us to do the same thing, not because he thinks that we are weak or that we're dumb, but because he saw the scars himself. He saw them, and it changed his life forever. May we believe and do the same. Let us pray. Father, we, we come to your resurrection, the foundation of our faith. 
And we are so thankful that you do not leave us blind, that we can trust your word. And that through that resurrection, you prove your love for us, your sacrifice for us, that we can entrust our whole lives to you. And we ask right now that through your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to live that life that you've called us to live. That your love for us would be our guiding vision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.